Welcome to this week's episode of Daily Horror Habit, the podcast for horror obsessives. I'm your host, Jay Krieger, bringing you horror movie reviews and discussions every Friday for your twisted pleasure. And as always be warned, these reviews and discussions may include spoilers. For this week's episode, I'm chatting about Rob Zombie's Firefly trilogy, starting with The Haunted House from Hell, House of 1000 Corpses, to the serial killer road trip, The Devil's Rejects, and rounding out for the final film in the series, the exploitation grindhouse flick Three from Hell. And joining me to chat all things death and depravity is my pal and the host of the Nuclear Fridge podcast, Mr. Matt Padgett. Matt, welcome to the show, man. Hey, thanks, man. This That is a much more organized and thought out intro than <laughs> any of the podcasts that I do. So that is awesome. <laughs> you know, I feel like I have to ground myself with just like a brief little written out thing just to get going because when I start out the gate, just trying to free ball. And it's something that I think you're not giving yourself enough credit for because you do a great job, I think, with Nuclear Fridge of, you know, kind of just record, hey, here's the people that are on and then just sort of like jumping right into things. And, you know, I think you do a better job than most in that regard with not having uh, maybe <laughs> the most structured of intros. Thank you for that. I Sometimes I try, like I, I think I, for your episode, I tried to like set something up, but then everyone was just like, my, they're, I record with these two <laughs> assholes, um, Jake Decker and Stuart Gears. And, uh, I was, I was like trying to set something up and then they were like, you're forgetting our guest. And I'm like, <laughs> shut the fuck guys. But then I guess it works out for the best anyway. So, <laughs> well, you guys have a really great dynamic on that podcast. So once, you know, things find the tracks, I suppose, for lack of a better phrase, uh, things flow more smoothly than, uh, than they don't. But yeah, man, these were, a group of films that I've kind of done a 180 on in a big way. Um, so, you know, we, you and I kind of trying to plan out what to chat about because I had such a great time chatting horror with you guys on Nuclear Fridge. And we kind of were jumping all over Rob Zombie's filmography. And I thought it'd be fun to kind of tackle the three films that I'd probably enjoyed the least when I originally saw them, probably back when I was in high school. But in revisiting them and kind of becoming a little more acclimated to zombie style and his sensibilities and things like that. Um, I definitely got more enjoyment out of them. Uh, so I'm excited to kind of dig into these with you. But before we actually get to do that, uh, for first time guests, I like to ask, you know, the first movie, horror movie or moment that uh, left an impression on you for uh, for better or worse. Yeah, I'm going to give you a couple because like I, I, I don't know when my first one was and I'm sure you could find a podcast with me saying when it was, but... I feel like, uh, I mean, like the Goosebump, car the, the Goosebumps cartoon, or not the cartoon, the like, uh, the live yeah, action, yeah, the YTV live action, uh, series mm -hmm. with that dog that's eyes glow and, uh, all that stuff. I remember that really scaring the hell out of me as a kid. Um, and I remember just being terrified of horror. And I think part of it was my mom was so afraid of it that I just saw her. And because I was afraid of her. I, she's a great mom. I don't want people to think that she beat the hell out of me. Um, but she, she, I was so scared of her cause she's just such a commanding presence. And I was like, Oh, well the horror must be too scary. And then I remember seeing a commercial for American werewolf in Paris. And it took me forever to find the trailer that scared me when I was a kid. Cause I remember it was a, 
it was a werewolf and there was at one point the werewolf jumped at the screen and I remember kicking over a bunch of stuff on a glass table and smashing a bunch of stuff and getting into so much trouble because I was afraid of a commercial <laughs> and, and specifically the part where the werewolf jumped at me. I was like, fuck that. Um, but then like throughout my life from that point, it was very much like I was always watching trailers or like watching movies and then turning them off right when I got scared because I wanted to see the monster. I wanted to see the thing that everyone was afraid of, but I, I would just like psych myself out. And I remember doing that with the Texas chainsaw remake in 2003 where the big reveal happens. I think it's like the first time you see Leatherface like fully and he's got the main chick's girl uh, boyfriend's face on. Oh yeah, um, yeah. And he looks at them and I remember that scene, just them holding on that shot for so long and so creepy. I remember hearing his breath. I remember just being freaked out. And then I rewatched that last year to like kill that like trauma in my head and it lasts for like two seconds and there's fucking rock music playing over it and I'm like <laughs> what the fuck I made this so much scarier yeah. <laughs> uh, so it, it's it's just been like demystifying horror for me has, has been the big thing and I think that all started with Get Out um, where I was just like man I love horror Get Out wasn't too scary I'm really gonna really going to try and uh, still nervous to watch horror watching horror kind of going, ah, that wasn't too bad. Uh, I remember when I was in college, I watched, um, this was before get out. I watched um, six sense and being so fucking terrified um, of just the anticipation of him walking up those stairs to that guy screaming in the cupboard. God, Ooh. I remember being, I remember like shitting myself in my uncle's house. Cause I was living over there and, um, I, I've gone back to it since not scary at all. I think what happened to me, the final moment that graduated into the only thing I ever want to watch are horror movies is when I watched us and I was so anxious when they were invading the house at the beginning of the movie. And then I felt something pop inside myself and I was no longer anxious and nothing has scared me ever since. So <laughs> I just think horror is awesome now. Uh, I think my body realized that like they're fucking movies and they're fun and they're not going to hurt me. And now my body just <laughs> let me enjoy them. So a wild fucking journey. That's a long answer. I apologize. It's a highly detailed one. And it's one that, you know, it, it not only lets me see a little more insight because, you know, like we are uh, recent, you know, Twitter and podcasting pals, but it's nice to kind of like immediately meet people and then get a sense of, the types of movies or the types of horror experiences that they gravitate towards. Um, and so, yeah, you know, it's one of those things where I introduce this segment always as like a mini icebreaker, but it's one that I always am appreciative when I get longer answers because it's the type of thing where it's like, well, yeah, I get to see like the art, your horror history arc as yeah. it were, and kind of just like beginning as that kid. Cause I think everybody can relate to that, right. On some level, like you're terrified of either, what you see on TV when you're too young or like even in your case and similar in my case, like your parents' reaction to mentioning horror, them seeing horror, discussing it, like that can be equally as terrifying because you're like, wait a minute, the adults are scared of this. Like they're not afraid of anything supposedly. Like how if they're terrified of this, then I can't imagine what my reaction to that's yeah. going to be. Yeah, it was 100% just terrified of fear. Like 
and and it not being there. Um, I remember Googling Monster from the Village when that movie was coming out because I so oh. badly wanted <laughs> yeah. to see the Monster from the Village. Like, I was fucking mm-hmm. silly with that stuff. Um, always loved horror games, though. That was a big thing for me. So mm. I guess I always kind of had my foot into that world. Um, but yeah, no, I, I love horror. Happy, happy to be on this podcast and chat with someone exclusively about these fucking movies that like if you describe these movies to someone and you tell them that oh i love them and the characters are are very lovable they will call you a fucking psychopath (laughs) (laughs) i i was describing these uh firefly trilogy movies that we're going to talk about to a friend and i said just listen to me there's rape there's murder brutal criminal acts but you love these characters, I promise. And they're just like, I'm, you're just going to have to fucking go with me on this. There's no way I can convince you. You just have to watch them. Yeah, you know, that's the quality of horror in general though, right? It's that it's able to take, like if you were to describe those things to people and they're like the most despicable of things, whether it's character traits or like even some of the more like thinking about movies you recommend based off like the practical effects and how gory they are and how they don't, how lifelike they look and those things and it's like when you're explaining within the context of, yeah, I enjoy horror movies or this person enjoys it. You're like, yeah, it's a perfectly reasonable and normal conversation. But outside of that, if people like overhear that type of conversation that don't know what you're talking about or they're not fans of horror movies, all of a sudden it's like, wait, this person is insane. This is the craziest person I've ever met. And I've, I've uh, you know, over the years had to really like curve my recommendations based off of what I know about somebody. Like when you first discover horror movies and maybe start discovering the more, uh, you know, like hardcore side of horror movies and things like that. You want to just like talk about them with somebody because they affected you in one way or they're memorable or you liked an element of them. But then you like very quickly learn who is willing to talk about or who feels the same way about those just based off of like shorthand conversations about it. Because half of the time I feel like you kind of just get that look from somebody where it's like their eyes glaze over and their brows are shrugged and they're like, wait a minute what did you just say? Like, why do you want to watch something like that? Doesn't sound enjoyable at all. Like having to justify your uh, enjoyment of entertainment. Yeah. I, uh, I, I always say that, like, I think the, the best people in the world, the nicest people in the world, the people who will help the needy and strive for a better earth are the people who embrace the darkness and they let it out. Like they like horror movies. They like dark humor. They like, uh, they like sp- just the darker side of, of the planet. People watch a lot of true crime and just, Oh, they're so fascinated with serial killers. Um, I feel like those people are the nicest people and the people who are super clean, super nice, super wholesome all the time. Like they never, they never swear. They never do anything. Those Mm -hmm. are the people you got to watch out for. Like Bill (laughs) Cosby. Uh, (laughs) like, they're hiding something. They're not embracing their darkness. Uh, and of course, you know, that's not fair to a lot of people, but, but I, I feel like the nicest people I know are all into horror and dark humor and all this other stuff. So I don't feel too bad when people look at me crazy because I'm the normal one. <laughs> one of my favorite comedians, uh, Tom Segura has a bit where he talks about like people that are adults that don't swear. And he's like, those are the people I have to watch out for. Those are the people that are cutting up cats in their basement. Like you got to watch out for those types of people. Um, But yeah, no, I think that that's largely true. You know, in my experience, at least of like people that are into horror movies as much as we are. And that they're the ones that not only like have, you know, could be into like 
these types of films or like have dark sense of humor and these types of things, but also like are able to laugh at themselves are not super high strung. And those are always the types of guests that I strive to have on the podcast. People that can just have a conversation very genuinely about film and be honest about that. But at the same time, like we're talking about movies and some of them are goofier than others and whatnot. And it's like, at the end of the day, it's all about just coming together and chatting about things that we enjoy for a variety of different reasons, but at the same time, more often than not, um, more similarities than that. But I mean, in terms of Rob Zombie, what was your first sort of experience to his filmography or was that even your first experience uh, or exposure to um, him? Well, my first exposure to Rob Zombie was like as a kid when he was doing uh, music. Like um, it was, I remember, I think the first time I ever heard Rob Zombie was watching a Dragon Ball Z anime music video <laughs> and it was Broly, and it was Broly beating everyone up to Dragula. Uh, so I loved, Very I fitting. loved Rob Zombie's music. I thought he was so cool. It was like him, Papa Roach, all these cool guys. Um, God, what was that other band? Uh, the the monkey. They did the monkey music video about having sex. Uh, Bloodhound oh, Gang. Yeah, yeah. so <laughs> he was among like those those bands I liked as a kid after the Beatles I was like all right now I'm cool um and I don't think I watched any of his movies until like maybe two years ago when I watched the remake of Halloween because all I had heard about him was he was terrible but of course all I had heard that from was people who don't like horror movies or they like these new horror movies that are very uh, artsy, which is not, there's nothing wrong with them like get out and hereditary and all that, but they've definitely uh, breeded a different kind of horror fan. Um, and so the first time I ever watched him was Halloween and everything I'd heard about that movie was that it was terrible and I really enjoyed it. Like I thought it was really well done. I think Rob Zombie is like, even if, especially after watching the Firefly trilogy, like I was shocked that he was so good at making characters you care about. Like there are so many times where Michael kills someone in that Halloween remake where I am legitimately sad that that character died. And I honestly cannot name another slasher movie that had me caring like that. Like I love like Halloween original OG best movie ever top four easily. Um, but like, I don't care that anyone dies in it. Like I, I'm not particularly fond of those characters. Um, and like a big, I, I loved the kind of the, the buildup, the origin of Michael in that his take on the origin. Cause I love the, he's just normal kid that just snapped one day and then he became, <laughs> then he became evil. Evil has escaped. Um, <laughs> but I love that he it shows us this psychopathic kid and him defending his mom and killing a bully because the bully made fun of his mom. And um, Rob Zombie has a great way of like loving the I, I wouldn't call them the dirty people of society, but the people who are often labeled as dirty, um, like uh, rednecks and sex workers and um, like truckers and stuff like that and people who are not, you know, squeaky clean. And I thought it did a great job of, you know, making this angelic figure out of a stripper who was stripping to support her family. And, um, and I love that Michael was like this kid who was showing early signs of psychopathy with, you know, 
murdering animals. And I think, funny enough, I think PETA gave him like an honorary award for showing that in his movie or, or like at least they like applauded him for it. They were like, yeah, thank you for showing the, um, that, that the link between, uh, cause, cause I, I guess it was per, it was like extremely selected because he is a vegan. He's like a super ethical vegan, uh, Rob zombie. And, um, I, I just thought like it was really well done and there's a lot of like good attention to detail. And I, I, although I'm not super sold on this, this little psychopath becoming huge behemoth, Michael, he is frightening. Becoming nine feet yeah, tall. Yeah, he is frightening. <laughs> and the people he... Like, there's... Uh, we're, I mean, I don't want to spoil the whole movie, but he, uh, Danny Trejo plays an orderly at the hospital, and he's, like, the nicest guy. He really cares about Michael. First thing Michael does when he escapes is kills him. And that broke my goddamn heart. Like, it made me... Oh, man. It, it still fucks me up thinking about it. And, like, that's not something that a lot of horror directors are capable of doing. Um, and I think Rob Zombie is really, really good at that. Um, so that was my first exposure to Rob Zombie and my last until I watched the Firefly trilogy. So that's, that's, I guess where we're here, right? Like what was your first time? Was it one of these? Yeah, it was actually the original House of a Thousand Corpses, which I came to at some point early in high school. And, you know, I grew up with, various types of horror movies, but horror has always been like an obsession of mine when it came to movies throughout my life. And so when I came to House of a Thousand Corpses at that age, I think, and you know, like my first exposure to Rob Zombie was his, uh, him being part of the soundtrack of uh, Twisted Metal 3, I think, (laughs) which was like my first exposure. And then to find out like he directed movies like blew my mind back in the day. Cause like, what did I know about that? But my first exposure was House of a Thousand Corpses. And I didn't enjoy it the first time I saw it because it was so foreign to what I had been led to believe was sort of the standard type of like a horror movie or just in terms of like, pick. I guess now you'd call them tropes, but like the movie itself just not only looks so different than a majority of horror films, but at the same time, for a lot of the things that you said that I've come to appreciate, like it was showing me and not to say I had like a super... Not that I had a conservative upbringing or anything like that, but it just, it was showing me at a young age, a side of life that I was unfamiliar with. So it kind of was just like something that felt very strange and weird to me at the time. And I was just like, well, this is just more off-putting than anything. And I'm still sort of 50-50 on that, but I think I've gotten a better appreciation for his ability to, in a very short amount of time, introduce characters that might live completely separate lives from the types of lives that someone like me might lead. But at the same time, like you said, that Danny Trejo example is a perfect example of that, right? Is that in such a short amount of time, he's able to make these characters, people that on some level you can feel something for, which whether or not, you know, at the end of the day, I find that some of the dialogue and relationships between them can be still a bit much. At the same time though, like like you had said, the fact that he's able to make Michael's mother, who is being portrayed as being this, like, again, like people would classify as being like a dirty person or an outcast person or this or that at the same time, like you put very well that like is an angelic figure and able to capture the very like childhood emotion of like, Oh, that's your mother. Like she can't do anything wrong no matter what. And anybody that wants to, you know, say something about that is going to have to deal with you or the person that, you know, loves them the most. Um, And 
it took me a while and just in coming back recently to the Firefly trilogy specifically to kind of do a 180 on them and, you know, compared to definitely if uh, like you had seen on Letterboxd, I had them rated uh, very, very low. And uh, I think we'll get to the root of like why that has uh, definitely changed, I think, for the better for me. Yeah, well, I think House of a Thousand Corpses is like one hell of a, it doesn't matter when you come to it at any point in your life. I feel like it is definitely a shocking movie in terms of just, uh, I guess it feels a lot like a Rob Zombie music video at times. Very yes, abrasive, absolutely. very mm-hmm. uh, just like completely abnormal the way you you watch it. And then they cut away to these like cutaways where there's this guy screaming in the desert for some reason. And I watched it on, I think it must have been 4K because I watched it in 4K the other day and it looked fucking so clean. It was so wild how clean it looked, like how how much detail there was in like Sid Haig's, like the the skin between his makeup and like it was really wild to see that movie so clear. And man, it, it's I think it might be my favorite of the three, just because I love I I just love I love Sherry Moon Zombie for one. Like I love her so much. I will fight anyone who ever, ever mocks her for anything. Um, and I, I think I love her so much just because she's having so much fun in all of these movies. And it's funny because she only ever wants to act in movies that her husband makes because she doesn't want to be an actor. She just wants to like have fun in the movies her husbands make. Husbands. Husband. And um, man, it, it, it's just such a fun movie that looks like everyone was having fun when they made it. And it sounds like that's not the case. But uh, it sounds like it was a nightmare because it was his first movie and he didn't really know what he was doing. But, dude, it translated into just such a fucking awesome experience. Like that whole weird opening where Captain Spaulding and that guy in his his museum are there and then the two people try to rob him. And then he's just like, he's like just insulting them the whole time. Um, oh my God, it's so good. It's It's just, it's such a goofy weird movie that when you watch the sequel, you're like, these are just so fucking different from each other. Like, it's almost like you're watching like a, a, a bad haunted house from a carny, uh, traveling circus. And it's, it, which makes sense. Cause Rob zombie has, when he was a kid, his parents were carnies and they traveled with carnivals and stuff, but it just captures such a like spirit that I love so much. And, uh, I'm always happy to see, uh, annoying people like Chris Hardwick get theirs. (laughs) (laughs) That's for sure a highlight of the movie. But, you know, that was the thing that I picked up on the most on this most recent rewatch of it is that in a lot of ways, and I I promise I mean this in a better way than it might sound, but it feels like a movie very much made by somebody that does not know what they're doing and is more or less relying on their own personal interests and like, you know, professional experiences prior to making movies, right? Like you had said, the entire thing feels like a music video that has the mania maybe of somebody that is like a hardcore horror fan or something of that nature. And that I think is the best compliment you can give something like this because it allowed, and you know, you're mentioning like everybody on set felt like they were having fun in it. And that just comes through in a lot of ways that could be viewed as aimless. And I would even say, you know, there's probably a couple of moments throughout, you know, the entire series that are aimless, but 
it feels like people that are enjoying the characters that they're portraying to the degree that they're like, yeah, we're going to do a scene now for us kind of, and we're just going to be in these people's shoes for, you know, a ne- another couple of minutes, maybe more than uh, a script would dictate or be relevant to uh, the overall arc of anything, whether it be character development or a plot. But at the same time, like you just get the sense that everybody is enjoying living out these ludicrous lives as these, you know, despicable people more or less. And yet again, at the end of the day, like zombies allowed to, or rather he achieves the ability of making them feel like people that you can begin to understand, (laughs) you know what I mean? For as despicable as all the things that they end up committing throughout the course of the trilogy at the same time, you're like, well, he captures the family atmosphere of these characters, even if they are, you know, again, kidnapping and murdering cheerleaders and they've got, you know, God knows how many corpses buried on their property. Yeah. Yeah. Having, having sex with their dead bodies. And (laughs) yeah, I mean, like, like I said, you, you could not describe these to someone and convince them that they're good movies, um, or light lovable characters. Um, but I think like what, really got me and made me love how like this is when I I was enjoying myself this is when the movie just like turned for me was when they finally um there's like Rain Wilson two ladies that I I can't remember who who they are and then Chris Hardwick um they get they they go to this uh the the Firefly house to get help to fix their car and then obviously things turn and for the worse uh, they are taken hostage and then bad things happen to them. And it's a scene where Rain Wilson is being chopped up and it's all grainy. It looks like, uh, it looks like found footage, I guess, but like who the hell would be filming this? <laughs> it looks like a snuff. Yeah, film, totally. Right? It, it literally looks like you're watching uh, someone's snuff film. Uh, but then, uh, it's like super creepy. And then Rain Wilson looks terrified. Uh, what's it called? Uh, Otis and, and baby come in and then baby turns on the radio and then brick house starts playing and it totally flips the mood of that scene to being like, Oh my God, these people are going to kill this guy to this is super fun. And I can't wait for them to stop, start cutting him up because <laughs> baby's dancing and laughing and she's always having a lot of fun. Otis is really enjoying this and rain Wilson is, doing such a good job of just being fucking horrified uh, about turning into a fish man that (laughs) it's just such a great fucking scene. (laughs) And then the reveal of his body to his girlfriend is so good. Well, I think that, you know, sort of what I was mentioning in terms of like, it feels like somebody that doesn't necessarily have a traditional foot in filmmaking. That is what actually allows what you're talking about to work as well as it does, I think, for the movie, right? Because at no point does this movie like structurally or stylistically seem like it is it is on like a set of tracks, right? It is very much sort of just weaving all over the place and it's able to blend into these moments of, you know, horror, but also comedy and then horror comedy bits and things like that. And, you know, the uh, just the bizarre nature of things. And also that's probably why the shifts in terms of like the stylistic qualities of the movie actually like really complement it and, you know, feed into that music video feel, or at least a music video feel that has texture to it. You know, I feel like sometimes when people describe movies as as feeling like a music video, it's like, well, yeah, it's pretty images and, you know, 
quality music playing against it. But with this, there's so much texture to everything. And it's a mixture of like a grungy and disgusting world mixed with music that maybe at times is as abrasive, but then sometimes has sort of maybe more of a poppy or even at some instances, like an angelic quality to it that plays a really fun contrast against like what is happening versus the musical choices. And I don't think you can do that if you weren't somebody like Rob Zombie that has a sense of like music and just the way in which you can impart visuals onto that and really have them complement one another, whether or not it's in a traditional sense. Cause you know, as we'll get to, there's nothing traditional about these movies at all. And yet for this movie, it works so well. And it's a quality that, you know, before jumping into the other movies, it's a quality that I don't know if the other movies retain as well, but those have their own, you know, individual strengths and whatnot. But I wanted to take it back because you mentioned Captain Spaulding and the introduction of the movie. And there was a quality that I really, really enjoyed about House of a Thousand Corpses on this rewatch in that Rob Zombie does a really great job. And in a very short amount of time, the ability to establish this very, you know, again, a weird setting that is a very abrasive and whatnot, but there's something authentic about it. It doesn't feel necessarily like it is like this world began the second the movie began. It always feels like you're being dropped into a setting and everybody that's in that setting feels like they belong in it uh, for better or worse. Right. But I think that that comes through in the use of uh, TV commercials and things like that, which, you know, kind of has a uh, almost taking a page out of something like a RoboCop's book, right? Where you're using TV and media to reflect the world that this is about, whether or not it's uh, as ridiculous and murderous as this one is. Um, how did you feel about that? Because I had forgotten about that completely, like how the movie opens with that uh, Dr. Wolfenstein's movie marathon segment or the periodic like commercials that play through. Yeah, I mean, I, I think I recognized uh, Rob Zombie's like music video style right away. Um it was definitely, um, I mean, like, like I said, this movie's a, a bit jarring for anyone who st- watches it just because of how, I mean, to credit what you said, it feels like a guy who loved horror movies, but didn't know how to make one. And then said, this is how I think we make one. And it, I think it completely fucking worked, but it's definitely like, uh, it's, it's a wild way to start a movie because it has almost nothing to do with anything else in the movie except for kind of the end like they kind of bring it around and which is like a really fucking shocking ending to me i i wasn't expecting anything about that third act um that was a fucking weird part of that movie and um then immediately after that it it, it kind of felt like um uh it kind of felt like you're driving through like these small towns in like the interior of BC, which is where I would be driving through small towns. I know that America has like a bunch of small towns between San Francisco and LA. But for me, it reminded me of the times when we would go through uh, small town BC and you would hear ads on the radio that aren't like familiar to you, like fireworks ads. It's like, yeah, that's weird. I live in a city we don't really have fireworks ads on the radio and whatnot. And then you'd come to these small places like, uh, diners in like hundred people towns or, uh, gas stations. And the owner looks disheveled. 
you don't know if you should buy the potato chips because you don't know when the last time Lay's delivered potato chips to this place. Uh, and it, it, it definitely felt very like, I feel like you could feel the atmosphere from those, those like commercials, the captain Spaulding stuff, and then going into the, um, gas station and then seeing, I think like the first time you see captain Spaulding outside of the commercial is he just took a shit or something like that. And he's like, it's like, Oh, this is the real guy. He's not this like, he's not a clown. He's, he's a fucking guy who owns a gas station. And Oh, also a weird, like cart, uh, haunted house cart ride. Um, and it just, it just feels very, uh, I mean, we've talked, we talked about it before, but he, he knows the, he, he knows a very different world of people and it definitely feels like from that world and very authentic. And, uh, I think Sid Haig is probably the greatest gift this world has ever given us. I think he's so fucking good <laughs> as Captain Spaulding. And I didn't even, I didn't, I, I never saw a poster. I never saw anything about the devil's rejects. So I didn't even know he was in the second one. So, uh, the whole thing about how he's actually part of the Firefly family, not, did not expect at all. Um, and then of course you go from this like really great redneck torture movie with like a crazy clown backwoods areas and then a creepy house. You go from that to an actual Rob Zombie music video in the house of a thousand corpses which was just like, I was like, what the fuck is going on? I think that it was probably, I, I, I would have loved to have gotten people's impressions of the movie right after seeing it, like right outside the movie theater. Hey, so what the fuck do you think about that? They're like, dude, the fucking end of the movie too much. It's, it's, uh, it's wild. And it's so, it, it it's, so I, you, you, you set it up because you, you probably set it up better than me. But what happens at the end of the movie where one of the girls escapes? Um, yeah. So, you know, one of the girls escapes and it basically turns into this entire like underground. You're talking about the underground yeah, section. Yeah, with right? Dr. Satan. Yeah. So, so this is the thing that I love about this movie. And, um, you know, actually before that, I wanted to touch upon something you said because it kind of just clicked for why – I think these three films have clicked with me in a different way the older I've gotten. And it's along the lines of what you had said about like driving through BC and you're starting to see maybe a way of life that is not in line with yours or it's not as familiar, right? And, you know, my entire life, I have family down south. And so whenever I I live up in uh, New England, and so whenever I go down and visit them as a kid, it's like, yeah, they live in the woods. They don't live by other people. So it's like, yeah, it's just me hanging out with my grandparents. But the older I've gotten over the years and, you know, venture out more into seeing how people down south uh, live or just like the atmosphere down there and, you know, being familiar with concepts that are not the same up north. Like like recently I went down to visit them and I had to like go to the junkyard or whatever to drop shit off. And it's like everybody at the junkyard had guns on them for some reason. And I was just like, oh, nobody where I live carries guns around <laughs> at the dump or whatever. And you know, it's been being more exposed to just people that live a different way of life, not making a judgment on that. It's just plainly different than what I'm familiar with. I think it overall, in terms of like consumption of media has made me 
not as, I don't know if I would say I was ever standoffish, but I don't have that same visceral reaction that maybe I had to Rob Zombie's movies. They're not as abrasive, even though they are still abrasive, like they're not as abrasive maybe as I found them when I initially saw them. Um, and that's a quality that I think has helped me actually like get past maybe some of my uh, my bias against maybe his style of filmmaking that I initially had or his approach to things. It's like, well, it's just different than what I am used to or what I was expecting. And, you know, maybe that comes a little bit with age. You're just like, yeah, I can get past that. That's not like a hang up for me. Whereas when I saw these initially, I was a dumb teenager. Not that I'm much smarter now, but um, I think in terms of the ending of this movie, what I really, really like is that for a period of the film, I don't necessarily know that it makes good on the title of the house of a thousand corpses, right? You're meeting these characters you're learning about all their depravity and whatnot, and you're shown very clear-cut examples of that. They're inarguable. And then the movie completely explodes into this like monster mania that fully capitalizes on that. You know, you're never gonna, we don't quite get to see a thousand corpses and whatnot, but it it presents a world that is indicative of that, yeah. right? You feel fi- you're finally shown evidence that, yeah, it could be a thousand, it could be five thousand based off of the hell that is introduced at that point in the third act. And, you know, she escapes, but then they get taken down in the catacombs of Dr. Satan, where he's been conducting all these autopsies and horrific experiments and very much still alive. And then I just love how the movie throws, like there's a little, almost a throwaway moment when they get down to that catacomb and there's like zombies that come out of the mud that try to grab them, pull them down. And then it's never explained like what, like, who they are. Are they zombies? Are they just people that are there and they just want food? They just want to eat these people. And I just love how the ending part of the movie just jumps from one horrific thing to the next and doesn't doesn't feel like it has to explain a lot because it's basically justifying it by showing you these increasingly horrific uh, monsters and things of that nature. I mean, you get to see, obviously, uh, Dr. Satan, which looks fantastic and has this is like this decrepit thousand year old man. That's got this exoskeleton on him. That's digging into uh, Chris Hardwick, which, you know, I got extra glee out of being uh, that it was Chris Hardwick, but also, I mean, I, it was funny on the rewatch. I was thinking, Oh, that kind of looks like one of the bosses from, I don't know if you've played killing floor too, but it looks like one of the bosses from killing floor. Who's like this German doctor that like skates around in an exoskeleton. Um, but that was the type of thing that I was just like, Oh, okay, cool. You can see, Maybe, you know, whether or not it was uh, it was purposeful or not, but just like the impact I feel that having this crazy monster mania can have on not only the movie, but then seeing that kind of trickle out into other forms of media, maybe yeah, uh, just presenting fucked up creations and not having to really justify it. They justify it based on the way they look or the things that they do, which was a quality that uh, that I really enjoyed. Yeah. And honestly, I mean, it's such a. It is like they're filming a Rob Zombie music video underground um, yeah. because of just like, it is so stylized. Um, ha- have you seen Lu- uh, Lucio Fulci's or is it Lucio Fulci? Uh, I think it's Lucio Fulci. Fulci. Don't quote me on that, but I think that's how All it's right. pronounced. So uh, Fulci's movies are very, um, I mean, they're very cheesy when you watch them in a lot of ways. But then when you see like his like horrific monsters and gore that it's just like, that is fucked up. Like that is like Italians are on another level of gore (laughs) and that whole section of just like creepy people, creepy creatures, the thing that chases the girl, 
Like that all felt very, I don't know if it was intentional, but it all felt very Fulci in just like, it was disgusting. I didn't want to look at it. Um, this, this like the rest of the movie wasn't as cheesy as a Lucio Fulci movie, but holy shit, (laughs) just the disgusting body horror that is in that, like Dr. Satan. I don't know if I've looked up Dr. Satan's face without the mask. Disgusting. It's so (laughs) gross. It made me want to vomit. It's disgusting. Well, I love that, you know, you get to the point where you have, uh, I think his name is Earl Firefly, who ends up being the father of one of the fireflies, but he's essentially the miner, right? He's the guy that has the mask on, the respirator, and he's got the pick pickaxe and he's chasing the girl. And it begins as what to me felt like a My Bloody Valentine sort of homage, right? It's like the miner is chasing a woman through the mines with a pickaxe and whatnot, which is fine on its own. But then Zombie takes it one step further, right? He removes the respirator. Not only is his face all mangled and mutated and fucked up, but then he starts like vomiting goo basically, which just is like this disgusting goopy cherry on top for something that was already like gross and disgusting in this gross and increasingly disgusting world. But his just taking it to the next level and being so matter of fact with it. It's like, well, of course this guy's going to vomit goop and not like linger on it for too long. It's just a byproduct of that character. Um, And I think that it's little moments like that, that really allow this movie to, you know, have its horror cred for as, as we've mentioned now, like, for as abrasive as it can be, as off the beaten path in terms of like not really adhering to any stylistic or, you know, concrete tropes of horror. Of course, there's going to be part elements in there, but like overall, it doesn't feel like a traditional horror movie. And that's, again, for some of the reasons we've mentioned. But I think the attention to the monsters, whether they are uh, alive or undead or, you know, mutated or just serial killers, that is where this movie really gets its horror cred from, I think. And that's something that, Again, you know, coming back to this movie after so long, it's the type of thing that I'm able to appreciate more and more of out of it. And uh, and definitely, you know, when I first saw it, I was kind of just like, I heard why people loved it so much. And then again, like my initial response to it was just like, well, I don't really understand that. But now, like, whether it be age or just understanding more about like his sensibilities as a filmmaker and where he's coming from, I'm able to really appreciate it more so in a way that. I don't know, just like is more in line with my upbringing of like loving monsters and whatnot and getting to look past or enjoy elements that I didn't that are more front loaded in the movie and then getting to that monster mashup kind of at the end that I love so much. But um, I wanted to take it back, though, to the characters because we've mentioned periodically some of them, but like let's talk about Captain Spaulding uh, and Sid Haig's performance, because like you had said, I mean, he is. I've seen him periodically throughout the years in horror movies and little roles or cameos and whatnot, but like he is truly phenomenal in these movies, I think in a way that while I think the entire family fire family fly (laughs) firefly family is, uh, is unique in their own right. And they really facilitate those characters in a way that makes them unique and justifies their inclusion. Like he is the outlier, I think in that performance and just how phenomenal he is in both films. Right. Even if, we, we'll get into the differences between some of the movies, but like he is the consistent force in the first two films at the very least, right? Where he is very much this very believable character that feels more multifaceted than the other parts of the family. Um, and I just want to, you know, let's go off on Sid Haig's performance as Captain Spaulding because he, uh, he is a delight in these movies. Yeah, I mean, I guess now we're going to be dipping into the other movies. Um, yep. 
Yeah, he's fantastic. He he's definitely the highlight for me. Uh, it's it's him. I mean, I say that, and then I go, well, I love Baby too, and then I also love Otis. Um, but I mean, those three are incredible together. Um, and but Sid Haig is definitely like the shining star of the first two movies. Um, and he is just so likable. He's funny. Like he's he's the perfect clown because he's funny. He's scary. And he's just someone you want to hang out with, but you're also, you're, you're like, okay, well, he, he's a, he's a maniac, but also I want to hang out with him <laughs> because like there's that scene where, where he, he, uh, he, he's stealing the car from, uh, PJ souls. Um, and he's like, give me the car. Um, and, and she's like, Oh no, you're joking. He's like, did I stutter bitch? And it's just like, wow, that was fucking scary. <laughs> it was just such a turn, but it wasn't like, it wasn't a horror movie turn. It was, this is a real person. Like it was a real turn. Like that could happen to someone in a real parking lot. Um, and then he gets in the car, and the little kid is there and he just scares the shit out of the little kid. <laughs> it's just so fucking good with his clown makeup on and he's just and, and you can tell he's just enjoying every second of it it's amazing yeah you know i think that scene from uh devil's rejects is the one that is most indicative of why he is such a powerhouse in these movies i think because he approaches that uh encounter very much like with the humorous side of a clown, right? He's like, I'm going to be needing to commandeer this vehicle for official top secret clown yes. business. And like very jovial and laughing and whatnot. And then it immediately, as soon as she steps to him and is just like, what are you talking about? He's just like immediately switches. And you, I mean, you put it perfectly. Like it doesn't feel like a, like a big sinister horror movie thing. It just, it feels like an insane person that is a real person that like you said, could there are probably people out there like that, that, you know, they look all cheery and nice, but then as soon as somebody says something they don't like, they kind of like turn the page. And then, you know, of course, in typical Rob Zombie fashion, it's the page is turned with him, you know, uh, hitting the woman and stealing the car. But then having that interaction with the kid that you can't not laugh at, yeah. right? He doesn't, he doesn't quite call the kid a bitch like he does the mother, but he... Is just like, oh, what, you don't like clowns? Like, you better come back with an answer of why you don't like clowns or I'm going to kill your whole fucking yeah. family. Like, <laughs> that whole tirade, I just love because, again, like, that's a quality that I think you don't have without the actor. But at the same time, like, Rob Zombie's not afraid or unwilling to undercut a moment of clear tension or something of that nature. Um, which, that I mean, that seems a perfect example. But also, I think the element of his character that... I really like that I don't necessarily attribute to the other members, even though, of course, I enjoy them as well, is that he feels like a more believable person because you get to see both sides of his, you know, psychopathy, right? He has those, especially like in the opening of the movie, right? You're introduced to that character and he's, you know, very vulgar and very brash, but he is having a genuine conversation with someone that he's familiar with. It's not necessarily somebody that's in on the killing and all of those things, but you see him as being like somebody that can blend in with society. And then, of course, when it comes time to commit heinous acts of violence, he's going to do that. Like he's the face of a business after all. He needs to be able to like play both sides of that. And I think that's a, a quality that allows him to seem more human maybe than the other ones where I enjoy the other members, Baby and Otis and whatnot. But they come off to me at least just as being these more like unstoppable forces of evil. Whereas, you know, of course... 
Captain Spaulding has his own heinous acts and things throughout the movies, but you at least see a human side to him, whether or not it's a facade or not. I think that just allows him to be a character that shows at least somewhat of a likable side. <laughs> Whereas for me, you know, with Otis, he's just like sleeping with dead bodies and threatening to rape people oh, and all yeah. these things where it's just like, <laughs> you know, they all have their different facets and roles to fill. But Captain Spaulding is one where I can, you know, say he at least feels like a believable character in a way that, I don't know, it makes him seem more genuine. And I can I laugh a little harder yeah. whenever he has his, uh, his quippy one-liners to throw I out I feel there. like he's the patriarchal figure of the firefly family the firefly family we chose a great episode just tongue like that one tongue twister keeps screwing <laughs> us up um and yeah i i he, he like grounds it kind of like a dad would he grounds the the family like baby is very um well she's psychotic and she's never not psychotic even when she's just having fun and otis is very much like you fucking idiots. We can't have fun. We're on the run from the cops. And and like I love that they go from a scene that is like horrifying, like real life horrifying. They they take a band hostage that's staying at a motel. They cap Brian Pesane, the nicest dude in the world. And uh Otis makes a girl a woman blow him in front of her family and it's horrifying. It's scary and uh it's funny. Bill Mosley was like physically distraught from doing that scene. Like he felt so bad, but the actress was like, uh, Oh no, this is the best. Like you, you, we're, we're doing good stuff here. And she was like working on Rob zombie set was her favorite thing she's ever done in her career, which is nice to hear about a rape scene. Cause <laughs> it's pretty serious stuff. Yeah. You know, I think that that scene is, and we're, we're going to get more into like comparing the various movies, not to necessarily like say like, Oh, this one's better than this one or anything, but just like the differences in making a trilogy of these types of films. And, you know, it was not planned necessarily as a trilogy. Right. And we'll get into that when we talk about uh, three from hell, but that's a quality of the devil's rejects that I think makes it a standout amongst the trilogy. in that I think it loses a lot of, it feels just a more, you know, there's a bigger budget, there's more fanfare behind going into that movie, being that, you know, it's his second movie now and they're throwing more money at him in these things. But also it feels like it is more structured, right? You, I think that's indicative of that explosive opening of the film, which I love because it has this much larger production. You know, you've got this shootout between the police and the Firefly family. So obviously it's a much more complicated scene to film, but it still has inklings of that grunginess and that grossness of the world that was established in the previous yeah. film. Yeah, it's right? like a, it's like an outlaw Western mixed with that Rob Zombie flavor. It's nice. Yeah. And, you know, it's in the little details. Like the thing that is so disturbing to me about that scene is that, you know, the Firefly family, sure, they have weapons, but they also make their own body armor out of just like, like throwaway pieces of metal. And there's something so demented about that, the way that it looks but at the same time, something that feels very believable about that, again, that like he's able to sort of make these environments that may be unfamiliar, but they don't feel necessarily like out of line with what you could actually stumble upon potentially in like the back roads or backwoods or something like that. But I mean, going back to the scene that you'd mentioned, like them taking hostages at this motel when they're kind of hiding out and whatnot, it is the type of thing where it and it's it feels silly saying it out loud, but like it feels like a nastier follow-up 
which, you know, when it's a movie, it's a series of movies about serial killers that, you know, have this crazy body count that only gets more and more ridiculous. That sounds ridiculous, but there is a nastiness to the devil's rejects that makes it feel like it's an evolution in his approach to horror. Like the devil's rejects feels more like a horror movie, I think, than House of a Thousand Corpses, even though, you know, House of a Thousand Corpses is a louder movie. It feels more bombastic a lot of the time. There's something in The Devil's Rejects feeling a little more reined in that allows the nastiness for me to shine through in something that I think makes it more akin to one of the influences that that movie had. Like he has said that, you know, obviously Texas Chainsaw Massacre is going to be an influence of that. Clearly, this is to a much uh, more explicit degree than that movie ever got to in terms of the original, but it's taking that same sort of back roads, deserted. There can't be more than, you know, a dozen people at this one location at any time, but the most heinous and unspeakable of acts are occurring. And there's something in that specific scene you mentioned where zombie like lingers on that scene for a lot longer a period of time. And it is a super upsetting scene, even though if you know it's coming or you've seen the movie before, and you know, of course, how could it not be? But it it's the type of thing that it feels, I don't know, it feels like a filmmaker that is maturing a little more in their craft that they're able to take a risk. And that scene, I think, has a really disturbing payoff that really informs the tone of that movie and then, you know, going into Three from Hell in a way that was unexpected and was, uh, it held up as being equally disturbing on this last rewatch. Yeah, it's it's effective. And I think, uh, I mean, Rob Zombie hates House of a Thousand Corpses. Like whenever he watches it, all he says is he sees a million mistakes or things he could have done better. So that evolution definitely feels real. Um, the, the thing that we feel is definitely sounds like Rob Zombie really figured it out between those two movies. And, and I love house of a thousand corpses. It's one of my favorite movies, but, uh, I, I definitely would have to agree that he like grew and, uh, to like maybe simplify it, but maybe he like found a book on, on filmmaking. Um, but, uh, yeah, I, I that 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 scene. I love it when Otis takes the two guys to go get the weapons and make them dig them up, and then he's just like, uh, like this. The thing is, like, you go from a scene where he was like performing a horrible act on this dude's wife, and it made it made, they shot Brian Pusain, and it made one guy throw up on his girlfriend. And as they're driving to this hole to dig up the guns. He's like, oh, you throw up on your girlfriend? She liked that shit or something? And it's just like, <laughs> he's just like rubbing it in so hard. It's And Bill Mosley is so fucking charismatic that it, like, we just watched this dude perform something that should make you hate him forever. And then he immediately is just hilarious the next scene. And that whole instance, that whole part of the movie is followed by a scene where they're driving away and baby wants ice cream. So, and so, and Captain Spaulding is like, oh, that's a great idea. And then they're like, they start chanting tutti fucking fruity. And Bill Mosley <laughs> as Otis is just getting angrier and angrier and says, we're not stopping for fucking ice cream. And then it hard cuts and they, they, they have their ice cream. And B- Otis yeah. is just sitting there like, God damn. Like, and you're like, yeah, that's awesome. They got their ice cream. It's like, wait a second. I just watched <laughs> these. <laughs> you motherfucker yeah. got me to love these people. 
I think that was when I realized I was like, oh my god, I love these characters, even though they're insane psychopaths. Rob Zombie figured out a way to make them make me cheer for them, uh, and it's awesome. My uh, my follow up was going to be like, do you think that anything of his style is lost in that growth that is evident from House of a Thousand Corpses to uh, Devil's Rejects? But you know, you kind of just answered it in that. It feels like somebody that has familiarized himself with filmmaking enough that it probably lacks some of the rough edges that the original film had, but he's able to really like dabble in both sides of his sensibilities of a filmmaker just being a storyteller, right? He's able to have these incredibly and increasingly with each film like fucked up moments, and yet he's still not afraid to undercut himself, right? He's able to have those you know, cheesy moments or funny moments or moments that present a lot of levity between them, like these people that are, you know, increasingly uh, blowing up their own body counts and things like that. And it makes for a really interesting and at times like uncomfortable balance, but it makes for something that I think is really singular in that regard. Like there's few other films, I think, that have such despicable characters that at the end of the day like you are latching on to an aspect of like the family part of those characters and like them you know every other word they say to one another is fuck you or something of that nature but at the same time like they haven't killed each other yet so clearly there's something about these characters that they like more than you know the countless people that they encounter that they have no problem killing uh and whatnot but yeah you know i think bill mosley is somebody also that does a really fantastic job at dabbling in the dark humor like the darkest of humor right where he's doing these horrific acts against people but like in a thousand of a thousand corpses you know it's not just that he's killing um that oh, what's his name geez now i forget uh fish boy oh yeah where he's killing yeah where he's killing him and it's not just that he's killing rain wilson but he's going to turn him into a half fish man, half whatever. And he's not just killing chris hartwick but he's going to use him as like a dartboard for his throwing knives essentially like there's those moments of that character. And then at the same time, you get that really, really disturbing monologue that feels like it should be out of a movie that plays it completely straight, devoid of humor, where he's talking about like, I am the devil or I do the devil's work, right? That whole monologue is like chilling for a guy that then is going to like talk about Tutti fucking Fruity with this family that he hates and yet still hasn't killed so clearly loves. Yeah, it's, and you, I think like another side of that is that he may, he's he knows how to make a character you fucking hate and that's the sheriff of that movie he just Ooh. fucking sucks and um god who's <laughs> the actor that plays him uh William Forsythe he's yes. he's such a good scumbag and mm. he's so fucking good in the devil's rejects like i love that scene where they're trying to figure out um I don't even know why they're they're really trying to connect this Groucho Marx stuff because Captain Spaulding is from a Groucho Marx movie. Yeah, I think the names of all the Fireflies somehow derive from Groucho Marx, which, which I, I don't know what, how that's going to help assume. them. <laughs> yeah, I, I think that's just like, that's a moment where Rob Zombie's like, oh, I like Groucho Marx movies. I'm going to include one of my influences in this somehow. Yeah. And maybe like, could have used an editor to be like, hey man, maybe like... <laughs> Reel it in a little yeah, bit yeah. and not have a whole scene devoted to that like one-off, but you know that's part of the charm, I guess, yeah. of his uh, his anti-establishment filmmaking. I, I do, I do like he kind of wins it back because I think the scene where um, Robert Trebor is playing this character 
that loves Groucho Marx, like is insanely yeah. obsessed with Groucho Marx. And he's, he's, he came to tell the sheriff about his movies. And I think he gets angry at Elvis Presley. He's like that motherfucking goddamn <laughs> Elvis Presley. And then <laughs> and the sheriff's just like, what did you just say about the King? He died yeah. three <laughs> days before Groucho Marx. Listen, if you ever say anything derogatory about Elvis Aaron Presley ever again, <laughs> I will fucking kill you. And it's like, <laughs> it's so fucking funny. Uh, so uh, even the scenes that are a little weird, it's still like, they got the charm and that, that sheriff, fuck him. Uh, <laughs> uh, but yeah, no, that, that it, it's such a cool, like outlaw Western, uh, yeah. And and the 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 final scene, I, I love the scene where they're all partying at that uh, that dude ranch, and the final scene with Fire uh, Freebird is just like, I don't know. You put Freebird to anything, I'll I'll fucking pump my fists. But <laughs> it's a great ending. <laughs> well, you know, I really like the duality of you know, William Forsythe and being this very vengeful sheriff and then having this family that he's hunting that really don't give him a second thought the entire movie, right? Until he shows up, they completely forget about him and they're just moving on to the next crop of people they want to kill or the current people that they're killing or planning to kill. And yet he, his descent into an obsession with them, you know, sees him have that very traditional arc of like, yeah, it's basically breaking him and he basically throws away his badge to do what he feels is right. And that's actually an element I wish they had focused on a little bit more with him just because like you get a couple of great scenes with him where there's that one where he's hallucinating in the basement of the Firefly uh, compound after they have that raid where he's hallucinating. I forget, is is it his friend or it's is the it sheriff. his father? It's the sheriff who, from the first movie. Yeah, it's the sheriff from the first movie that was murdered, obviously, by the Firefly family. And he feels a certain level of responsibility for that. And so it's like hallucinating him and having this conversation where basically the guy's like, yeah, you have to kill those motherfuckers. This is what they deserve. This is what they need to get. And you're the one to give it to them. And there's moments like that. There's the fact that, yeah, he like guts mama firefly, which is the act that basically sends him spiraling to Danny Trejo. And I believe the other mercenary he hires is a uh, diamond Dallas yep. page, I think, but he like Great sends casting. them after the fireflies, which yeah, again, like, Rob Zombie has a casting that it feels like people that he himself is a fan of, which I think comes through in their performances because, you know, a lot of the performances for characters are very hammy. They're very playing into the perception of who they are largely as character actors. I mean, you see that with Ken Faree, right? Who comes in as um, Captain Spaulding's brother who owns the brothel. And it just makes for a very chaotic but fun amalgamation of all of these fucked up people that are, they feel like overburdened by the simplicities of their outlaw lifestyle. And yet they have that lifestyle because that's the life they want to live because they don't want to conform and whatnot. But it makes for a really fantastic melting pot of all of these people from like a collective walk of life, but all very different walks of life and what they're dealing with and whatnot. And that makes for a, uh, just an electric cast of people that comes to a equally electric uh, finale, yeah. which I think, you know, that ends in, again, like a really fantastic example of Rob Zombie feeling more reined in in terms of his direction, but not willing to compromise on his approach to like violence and things like that. Like you get all the Firefly family members 
bound to chairs by the sheriff and the mercenaries and then getting like staple gunned or getting nails through their hands. And it has a very Texas Chainsaw-esque approach to violence in that you're using these unconventional means of torturing people basically and seeing people that are getting uh, gratification from that in a way that, you know, you remember that these are fucked up people, but at the end of the day, for what many of the reasons you've said, like these are characters that at this point you're rooting for the people being hurt that are monsters versus this other piece of shit monster that is the one inflicting it. Yeah, I th- I, it's funny. You, you were talking about the type of violence. I think before I got into horror movies, I would always, I, I'm, I, I've been a hypochondriac my whole life. Um, I'm doing a lot better now, uh, OCD and all that. And, but like when I was a kid and when I would grow up into an adult, I would always see things and go, oh, this is how I could die. And I would think of the worst, most gruesome way to die by falling off of a railless patio and landing on a like big rock that like splats my head. So that is, that, that's just something that like, yeah, I, I just, anyway, that was just a, a tangent I went on that I, that I went, oh man, I, w- I was a sick motherfucker growing up. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> um, but yeah, un- unconventional ways to die are always fun in horror movies and, or to torture and whatnot. We said, I sound like a lunatic I, I, here. <laughs> Um, but it, it's always it's always a good time uh, killing people with with things that you wouldn't normally kill them with. That I'm sticking to it. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I think that's something that everybody can relate to on some level. I think, right, the idea that when you're looking at a household item in the back of our minds, whether we perseverate on it or not, it's the idea that it's like, who hasn't used a stapler and been like, man, if I miss and I staple my hand, that could be fucking, that could be a yeah. mess, or that could be super painful, and then you catch yourself like thinking about that later when you're removed from a situation where there's a staple and you're like, why am I still fixated on that? And then just like makes your skin crawl and then you end up perseverating on it far longer than you should. But yeah, it's definitely a quality of movies such as this. And I think, you know, to again, bring it back to like Texas Chainsaw Massacre, the original film, that's why that movie was such a standout for me when I finally got around to watching it when I was, you know, in freshman year of high school or something because I'd seen something like Halloween, right? Which is, you know, he uses a knife. It's like, well, yeah, I've always been told as a child, don't play with knives. They're sharp. You could cut yourself. You could hurt yourself. If you watch a monster movie, it's like, yeah, it's a monster. It's going to eat you anyways. But like when you go to something like Texas Chainsaw Massacre, what is he using? He's using a hammer. He's using a chainsaw. And, you know, I didn't grow up around chainsaws, but it's the idea that like using something that has a real occupational use for it. And all of a sudden it's not being used to cut wood. It's being used to sever limbs or that hammer is not being used to nail things. It's being used to hit somebody in the head and then they end up having a mini seizure and you hit them until they die. Like that's a quality of horror violence that I think still sticks with me and it allows certain movies to have an edge to them that is far more grotesque than maybe something that is more traditional in terms of like a murder weapon or something like that. You know, not to say that they can't be effective, some, you know, a killer with a knife or something like that. And not to say like traditional means of dispatching of people in slashers is not equally terrifying, but there is a grungy quality to seeing household items or, you know, property items being repurposed into a means of death that is just, or means of torture that has just an icky, sickening factor to it that I think gives some movies, this one in particular, like its edge in being grotesque. Like I think that comes through in Otis. 
Like with this film and then three from hell, he's not just stabbing people to death with a knife. Like what is he doing with the knife? Oh, he's cutting people's faces off or he's cutting their skin off and making them wear it. Like that is taking something that is a very classical act to the next like umpteenth degree that makes it that much more demented and, and fucked up that it tracks with these characters, right? Everything that you've been led to believe about them up until this point, it's like, well, of course he's going to cut their face off. Why wouldn't he? That's just something that he does on a normal given day. Um, And I think that when you have characters whose personalities are so clear cut yet so unpredictable, the next thing that they do is not that surprising, but it is surprising in seeing it actually kind of come to fruition. Yeah, for sure. Um, Yeah, it's, it's it's something else um but uh i think like the this firefly trilogy i i feel like i i like 3 from hell a lot thinking about the next movie um but it it's just not the same and um i i've been i've been a little i've been dreading talking about it a little bit that's why i'm jumping <laughs> in taking the first first dip but uh Sid Haig was very sick when they went to film this movie. And, uh, it's sad. Like Rob zombie was saying that he like went to go meet him to talk to him about the movie. Um, and he was just like, Oh, he's, he's sick. Like he's really sick. He's, I mean, you can see it in the movie. He's so thin. Um, and he wasn't even going to put him in the movie because he didn't want to bother him. But then I think universal was like, no, you're not doing this movie without Sid Haig, which is like kind of wild. Like, yeah, like the fact that they're like, no, you need Sid Haig in this movie. Like he's one of the reasons people love these movies. So he, he has a very small role in that. He, I mean, at the end of, of the devil's rejects, they get caught by the cops, that big firefight. They didn't die. They went to the hospital and then they became these kind of like messiahs these like media legends media sensation yeah and it's it's a really interesting way to take that them and uh they so Sid Haig is like he he gets he gets executed he he's in the electric chair and um and then you you have the other two which I I still love the movie but and I and I love Richard Brake it's just not the same it's it really is it really is not the same without Sid Haig. Um, Baby and Otis are still awesome. Sid Haig is good in the role. I I feel like he doesn't distinguish himself enough from Otis. Um, but I mean I love that first scene with Baby when she's walking down the, uh, the hallway. It's like it's like I I want to film a really awesome scene with my wife. It 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 feels like that where she just looks badass and hot and. I, <laughs> it it really does just feel like a, a, a like total glamour shot. Um, but I I loved it. I thought it was badass. And uh, she's got some prison tats now. Um, I I don't know what what do you what do you think of Three from Hell? Because it's it's a hard movie to talk about because um, I don't know. Like because I said, hey, we just spent we spent like a good chunk talking about how great Sid Hag was, and now we have a movie where we sadly uh, could not get enough of him. Um, so it bums me out a little bit as much as I like it. Yeah. You know, I mean, before getting into that, like, yes, Rob Zombie's a confirmed like wife guy, right? It's awesome. (laughs) The old top tier wife guy where he's just like, yeah, uh, I love my wife and I'm going to let you know that every time she's on 
uh, film, but which is not a bad thing, but definitely notable in this considering like the absence of Sid Hag. There's a lot more of an emphasis on Baby in this because, you know, obviously uh, Sid Hag, unfortunately, is not in it for the reason that you mentioned. And, you know, I watched the trilogy this time in the rewatch over a course of two nights. I did a back-to-back House of a Thousand, Devil's Reject, and the following night I watched uh, Three from Hell. And yeah, the absence of Sid Hag hit a lot fucking harder because the first time when I had seen the original two films, it was over a couple of years and then I hadn't rewatched them until, you know, in prep for this, which was probably a decade since since they'd been released. And then I had seen Three from Hell when it came out, but I had that distance that I kind of watched it and really didn't like it because, you know, I had not re-familiarized myself. I think on Letterboxd, I gave it like a two two stars or something like that. And, you know, re-familiarizing myself with the context of the characters in the world and just, you know, having a little maybe more, uh, <laughs> a little more ability to move past some of the elements of Rob Zombie's um, signature style that I didn't like initially and kind of having a bit more of an appreciation for. I definitely enjoyed Three from Hell more than I did, while I still find that it feels like a movie that, kind of feels a little hodgepodge together in a way. And there's definitely like a lot missing from it of the original two. And a big part of that, like you'd said, is from Sid Hag. However, despite that absence, which, you know, I'm, I'm a little conflicted on his inclusion of it. Like it was fantastic to get to see him in it again. You know, it's the last film in that trilogy. It's bittersweet because obviously he passed away very shortly after the film was released. I think it was within a couple of days uh, which makes it really, you know, that much more uh, bittersweet, like I said. But there's something about just like seeing him that sickly that is like, it's super upsetting. Yeah. Um, in a way that it's not just that, I don't know. I understand like including him, I'm sure that he was, you know, he wanted to be included in it. But like, there's something where like, it's, and it's not just like, well, this is a very different version of the character than you're used to. It's like he it looks like it's a struggle almost to get out the lines, which it just makes that scene very morose in a way that was like shockingly upsetting for me uh, in a way that I was really not expecting. Um, and I think that moving on from that moment, I'm a, I really, really enjoyed on the rewatch just Rob Zombie's like style and the first third of the movie's. And it, I think the first third of the movie plays very differently now in 2022, like all that media f- uh, frenzy and scrutiny surrounding the Devil's Rejects. I think when I saw it initially and not having the context, I was just like, well, this is like kind of ridiculous. But now, you know, like the time we're living in, seeing a media scrutiny around these despicable people, but just seeing how like people can distort information and how fervor can be created around people that maybe see a part of them represented or see people that are like saying words that they agree with, even if it's coming from people that they don't agree with. Right. That whole, like, Oh, this is a conspiracy or the man is getting us down. And then seeing like taglines, like um, free the, what is the word free the three, right. That's where that crops up around them and whatnot. And that's an element that I think pairs really well with the overall like exploitation tone of this movie in that it very much plays into like the the sort of stylistic elements of an 80s broadcast or something like that, where you've got these cheesy graphics and cheesy music that plays over 
horrific reporting on what these people have done. And, you know, I think they say at one point, like, Baby has 150 complaints from while she's been in prison or something like that, where she's getting into fights and making weapons. She's completely indifferent to being on parole again and just doesn't give a fuck. She's like, well, I'm going to do what I have to do and all of these things. And I think I appreciated that intro to the film, which is more or less like the first third of the movie, just because, again, it felt like a refining on a tone, even if it was very different than the first two films, right? You don't quite have something like that from the other movies, um, which I think, again, like showed a level of growth in, I don't know if, I guess it would be growth for me in terms of like Rob Zombie's very erratic style and sensibilities to like be concentrated on one thing for any given period of time, which I thought was very rare. Like he was able to stay on one type of tone or he was able to stick on one style of storytelling rather than, you know, having this very back and forth, back and forth, jumping between snuff film, negative style, music video style, or, you know, people getting decapitated or something and just like playing it very straight for more than 30 seconds, I thought was an interesting uh, stylistic choice, but also it helped like, reaffirm these characters as who they are and you know again it was like what was it 14 years since devil's reject i think 2005 to 2019 and he does a great job i think of like putting us back in that world refamiliarizing us with those characters in a way that's both humorous and both dark and both fucked up but doing that in a way that feels justified and feels indicative of the period of time that has transpired between that in a way that I really, really appreciate it before, you know, a long winded answer before diving into the, uh, the, the rest of the film. Yeah. I mean that whole like prison thing, I, I think like my big problem with three from hell, I mean, other than just not having enough Sid Hag, um, for obvious reasons, um, you know, it's, it's something, it's a shame, but, uh, you know, yeah, you gotta do what you have to with the circumstances. Um, is that it definitely feels disjointed from the different parts. Um, it feels like there's just a short transition between the prison stuff to Mexico. Um, and I love, I mean, I still love it. Like I loved the, I loved when it started to turn in the three from, and, and the thing is, is like the movie's called three from hell. They're not talking about Richard Brake, but he ends up being one of the three from hell. And I, I don't know. I, I, I get, I love Richard Brake, but he, it feels very not necessarily shoehorned, but it it stands out. It stands out. But like, I love when like I, everything in the warden's house, I loved them keeping them hostage. The warden going to work, uh, D Wallace playing the, uh, Greta, 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 Greta. Yeah. She's this like, bitch of a prison guard and she's just mean and I think she's having an affair with the warden but she's also is that is that what was happening she's having an affair but she also likes baby I I think I think it's that she's infatuated with baby and that one of the other guards was the one having an affair with the warden right it was the one guard that comes in that brings him the uniform oh and he's like he's all hopped up on coke which we have to mention (laughs) uh, the prison warden yeah, who is absolutely electric from the moment he steps on screen, right? I mean, just his whole persona and outfit, but then like immediately when he gets 
presented with this situation of like Otis and um, uh, what is it? Coltrane or cousin Foxy Coltrane yeah. played by Richard Brake, uh, take their wives hostage. Like he immediately goes right to the blow. Right. Yeah. And just like spirals down the rabbit hole with that. And then just like is very, uh, not just bossy, but he's just like, get the fuck out of here. Like, don't even come in my office or this and that. And she's like, oh, well, you were all about it last week when you had your hands down my pants or something yes, like that. That's yeah, right. Yeah. That's, yeah. Uh, it's a prison with uh, with more than one HR complaint pending. Oh, yeah. It's, it's a real, real dirty place. And uh, I, it's like it's it's it, again, creates a bunch of characters you fucking hate and you just want to see die. Um, <laughs> and uh, I, you know what? I, I I'll, I'll give him credit. I think other than the sheriff from the second movie, I don't think any character is so over the top that it feels like we're really trying to make you hate him. Um, maybe Greta is another one of those that's just like, man, what the fuck did you do that for? I was real rude of you. But that like, I think the kids from the, the first movie were not, they were annoying, but they weren't like rude or mean or they didn't deserve to die, but you still kind of wanted them to. Um, and I feel like these characters definitely, uh, like the wife didn't deserve it. Uh, <laughs> actually I love it when she's running away and baby's chasing her and baby's like got her hands up, like chasing her. Like it's a fucking cartoon Looney Tunes, uh, chase, <laughs> but like you see her with a knife. It's so creepy. And then she just stabs her and kills her. And then she's, she just like says hi to the grandfather. That's just sitting on his porch watching her yeah. she's like, Oh hi grandpa. <laughs> and then she leaves. I love that. That's so fucking good. Um, well, it's indicative of just like who those characters are, right? I think that by the third film in this series, we are familiar with these characters enough or re-familiarize with them enough that whatever they do can't be over the top or can't be out of character because it's been established that these are people that have unpredictable responses and behaviors to everything. So everything feels perfectly in line, which is why I think that plays so well, that entire uh, segment. Yeah, for sure. Uh, I mean, the introduction of Richard Brake, though, was one that, you know, obviously would have loved for Sid Haig to be in the film. But I think that I like I'm a huge Richard Brake fan just from a few performances I've seen of him, like even in a, one Rob Zombie film that I I personally really don't like is uh, 31. I don't know if you ever saw that one. Uh, yeah. So that's one of his films that I don't like. But the movie opens with, you know, uh five to seven minute monologue by Richard Brake that I think is not only one of the best things that Rob Zombie's ever filmed, but I think it's one of the best things Richard Brake has ever done in terms of just a brief monologue. And he's a character that's throughout the rest of the film, but it is of such a chilling caliber in a way that feels, it feels not fitting in a Rob Zombie movie just because it's so horror focused that it almost doesn't align with Rob Zombie's sensibilities in terms of what he typically makes with horror movies or rather I guess comparing it specifically to the Firefly trilogy right he's playing that balance and whatnot but essentially Richard Brake who I think played Joe Chill in Batman Begins he's basically giving a mini audition for why he should be the Joker in the opening moments oh. of 31 um, and like I saw that before I saw this and immediately became like a lifelong fan of him and then of course saw him in Mandy even though He's only in that movie for like less than five minutes. He's like, the best scene. He's able to. Yeah. I mean, that scene is insane. Like I just, I love his ability to occupy very little screen time, even though in this he's in it more frequently, but like he is a very, 
seldomly a focal point of any scene. And yet he's able to instill a certain level of like gravitas that I think, not to say he's a better character, but he'll, he really like eclipses a lot of other people that have been in these movies now for two or three movies at this point, just in the, like his ability to steal a scene and not be this menacing caricature that maybe the others are. And we appreciate them and love them for that. But he's able to like have these little moments that stick with you in a way that I don't find due for the others. Like just his brief introduction, right. As I think his nickname is what the midnight Wolfman. Uh, which is what the media calls him. It's something along those lines. But like, what's one of the first things he does when he springs Otis from prison from his work detail is that they start arguing about who's better, Humphrey Bogart or James Cagney. Oh, right, yeah. And just like (laughs) that whole discussion I fucking love. Like that's a little thing that is so super specific to those characters and is completely inconsequential to the rest of the movie. But at the end of the day, like he sells that love with such a level of determination that you're like, He's a serial killer, and he, other than arguing about like whether his stature is above the other Firefly members in the press, like he is a ride or die James Cagney guy, yeah. and fuck anybody that says otherwise. I love, I love later in the film when he's he's like trying to sell them on an idea when they go to Mexico. It's like, oh yeah, we should film movies, we should film pornographic movies, and he's like, <laughs> he meets the girl later, and he's like, oh, you should film in my movies, and she's like oh my god, okay, I'll be in your movies, Hollywood. <laughs> and he's like, yeah, sure, whatever. All right. <laughs> he's also really good in uh, in Kingsman. He's the, um, there is, uh, they, they're doing the tests on the, on the kids who are trying to be the next James Bond or whatever. And the, oh, yeah, yeah. the like preppy one gets kidnapped and is, is being interrogated. He's on a train track and he's being told like, hey, you got to tell me what's up with the Kingsman or I'm going to let this train hit you. And then he gives it up. That's all Richard Brake doing the interrogation. Uh, it's, he's so good. He's just so, and that's a, again, another really small role where he just completely steals the scene. Yeah, absolutely. I, there's one other piece of dialogue he has that I fucking love that I have to mention. Oh, when he's with the girl in Mexico, right? And she's like, oh, you're gonna take me to Hollywood? And then he's like, yeah, Hollywood. And just like a thing with his eyebrows, which I just love because it's like, doesn't have to linger on that moment. He's just like, mm-hmm, yeah, it's gonna yeah. happen. Uh, but he's watching Quasimodo and she's like, oh, I hate this movie or I hate movies like this. And he goes, that's Lon Chaney as Quasimodo. Yeah. It don't get better yeah. than that. Like, just... <laughs> So matter of fact, just a little moment like that, that, you know, you could consider being a throwaway, but it sticks with me the entire week since I've watched the movie and just like laughing to myself about it. Cause he's, he's so like in his own element and his own mind state about that, that it's like, yeah, of course he loves Lon Chaney and he loves James Cagney. And it's like anybody else that says something like, I think what I love about that scene is not only is he matter of factly stating that, and it has nothing to do with the rest of the movie, but it is an instance that I think is similar to like the Captain Spaulding moment that we mentioned with the car, right? If that woman had said something bad about Lon Chaney, I feel like you would have gotten a scene where you get to see the coin flip, right? I feel like he is a good equalizer to Otis in that Otis wants to kill every single person that he meets and he lets them know that within yeah, like He only five wants seconds. to have sex with dead bodies. Right, yeah, exactly. And with Richard Brake's character... He's somebody that you feel could like blend into society enough that 
it could be like a wolf in sheep's clothing. Yeah. And I think that actually makes him almost more terrifying. That's a good point. Yeah, that's a good point. Uh, I it also like I I mean speaking on his love for <clears throat> James Cagney and and Lon Chaney, there's that whole thing about with uh, Captain Spaulding and the Duke John Wayne when he's like talking about uh, I think is a tattoo of like the date that he got an Oscar. Um, oh, yeah. Yeah. So it, it does. It it it's funny that that's another way you can tell it's a Rob Zombie movie because I feel like Rob Zombie is like. I feel like that that Lon Chaney bit with with Richard Brake just feels like something Rob Zombie would say to like his kid who's like I don't want to watch Quasimodo and he's just like that's Lon <laughs> Chaney. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, in terms of just like Three from Hell and sort of the I don't know, this is something that I wanted to come back to in that I had read that like they filmed the movie, they did principal photography, they filmed the movie and everything. And then they took like a six month break, I think, because Rob Zombie was touring, I believe with Marilyn Manson at the time or something. And they, they had that six month break before he edited it. And I don't know if that has anything to do with it, but how did you feel about just like the overall pace of the movie? Cause for me, you know, it felt incredibly disjointed to a degree that I was like, okay, with house of a thousand corpses and the devil's rejects, it's the type of thing where I was like, I can appreciate this is a filmmaker that's making what seems like zero compromise in most regards, right? And that is a rare instance, I think, where it pays off more than it doesn't. I think in both of those movies, or all three movies, there's instances where I was like, would have been great if somebody told him to cut two minutes from this scene because like I'm ready to move on to the next thing. But overall, I think if you were doing that approach, then the movie would not be as singular in that tone and that voice and that style as it is with one of his movies and three from hell though it's a movie that's almost two hours long and for me at least it felt far longer than that in a way and i'm just curious like what was your overall take in terms of like how he's able to key up all of these different moments of like you have the prison break and then you have them in mexico and then you have the culminating event at the end of the film yeah it, it felt like a TV show almost in a lot of ways. Like, like, I don't know how you would break it up into a TV show. Like maybe like a five episode show, two, two episodes in the prison, this, that, and then two in Mexico. And I, but like, yeah, I, I definitely, I definitely know what you mean. It, it just like, like I said, it feels very disjointed between the prison, the kind of runaway scene. And then the, Mexico scenes and uh it, it almost doesn't even feel like the same movie um because I think a big problem with that is that like as soon as they leave the prison there was never really a threat that they were going to get caught there was never really any conclusion to that story whereas I think the devil's rejects also has parts of the movie that you can split up and that would be the beginning the middle, which is like the, they're keeping that band hostage and then the rest of the movie. And even though those are three very distinct parts, they don't feel as, um, disconnected mostly because there's always, I, I almost feel like if they hadn't killed the warden, the warden could have been like a, a bigger threat throughout the whole movie. I feel like it might've helped like the warden went down to Mexico and told the cartel, 
that there was a yes. that the yeah. Bill Mosley was here and he killed Danny Trejo at the beginning of the movie and everyone was like, "Well, fuck, Danny Trejo, we got to kill this guy." Um I feel like that would have made it feel less less like I was watching two different movies that were put together. Um definitely agree with I'm that. Sorry. I mean, I, I and and saying all that, like I still loved the movie. Like I think my favorite scene probably top five favorite scenes from the entire series is when baby was talking to um the dwarf in mexico and saying you remind me of my brother tiny and she, the guy was like oh tiny he's like no tiny was huge but he was also very beautiful and he never thought he was beautiful and i'm like this, this is like a really fucking good scene and fuck all of you for saying sherry zombie moon sherry moon zombie <laughs> is a bad actress <laughs> She's having so much fun in these movies. She's playing the character perfectly. You guys need to grow up. That's what I'm saying to everyone who doesn't think she's a good actress. She's awesome. And that that scene like sold it for me. That I'm like, yeah, she's legitimately good. That was a touching scene. Yeah, that that is definitely a highlight of well, you know, I would say I definitely enjoy the first and you know, final third of the movie because of moments like that, right? And I think that the end of the movie, the finale, that final act does a really good job of wrapping up this trilogy in a way that like gives you this big culminating, uh, you know, action sequence that kind of is playing off of these characters, you know, strengths and their inclinations for violence in a more stylized way that we've seen. And yet you're also able to have those types of moments. Like that is a moment that I think is a standout. Yeah. Like you said, of the entire trilogy and that you're able to present these people that are for the most part, irredeemable. And yet they're able to have those types of moments. And like, I don't know. I That scene made me be like, well, I wish we'd gotten like a few more scenes of this caliber of writing throughout those series. You know what I mean? I guess that that's one of my things is that I'm still not completely sold on a lot of zombies dialogue with characters. And yet when you have a scene like that, that is not only performed as well as it is written, I was just like, man, I would have loved to have had more personable moments like that, that give, you know, and I think that it's important that that type of scene comes from somebody like Baby, who is, you know, maniacal and in, throughout the entire film, right? You never see another side to that coin other than that. Yeah. And I think that that's important because, you, like I said, it shows the other side of that character in a way that is more subdued than we've gotten in the other films. And, you know, maybe you wouldn't have that effect if, she was subdued periodically throughout the other two films, but it just shows that for me, at least that maybe there was a little more potential in that duality of like, yeah, they are these people, but then having something of somewhat of a heartfelt moment like that, that's written as well as that. Cause like you said, that is a moment that is a standout, not only of the firefly trilogy, but I think of um, Rob Zombie's filmography in general. Um, But in terms of like the final act of the film, the thing that I really appreciated was you have those three characters and you're putting them in a situation that is completely foreign to how the franchise began or the series began, right? And I think that that's why I have so much, I had so much fun with it. And again, you know, the benefit of a rewatch was that I was refreshed with the previous two films and then watching this one. And I was like, you could not, for all the money in the world, 
predict that this franchise based off of House of a Thousand Corpses was going to end with them fighting the cartel in Mexico. Like it is such a far out of left field (laughs) premise and uh, conclusion. And yet it's also like probably the most stylized thing he's filmed in this, you know, speaking solely of this uh, series and franchise. Um, It's the type of thing that shows, I think, growth as a filmmaker, even if, you know, there's a lot of bad CGI blood in it, but I won't harp on that. Um, I think that the way that that entire sequence is filmed feels organic to those characters, but at the same time, like, just the way it looks, it looks so much... I don't... Again, I don't know if I would say it looks better because it's not in line maybe with his style and sensibilities that's in the first two films, but it just... It looks like a very competently shot more action-focused sequence in a horror film than I think I was expecting from somebody that doesn't have a lot of those elements in his other films. Yeah. I mean, I, I completely forget that The Devil's Rejects and Three From Hell are horror movies because they feel like westerns to me. And uh, I think I think when I defend loving these characters, I say, well, you, you like Clint Eastwood. and you Well, Clint Eastwood is a bit more of a good guy in those dollars trilogy but you like the cowboys you like the outlaws you like the 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 guys who are robbing people and you like the joker so why can't you like people who maybe a little more realistic to our time but they're still written well they're still given moments to be human and like sure they do bad things but you know what i can fix them I, I, I feel like if they were real people, I could be their friends and fix them <laughs> and then get murdered in the process, which would be an honor. <laughs> yeah, you know, I think for that that final act, as uh, as maybe, again, like, I feel like getting there might have been a little more long-winded than it needed to be. It felt very fitting with the more Western sent the more Western that those films become. Right. And I think that had it not ended that way, I don't know. I'm, I'm curious. Like I might've viewed it almost as like a regression just in terms of like going backwards rather than this series of movies feeling like one continuously moving and evolving thing, which was not necessarily the feeling that I had on it when I originally saw it. I was kind of like, well, I was taken aback. I was like, well, this doesn't feel like where we started. And granted, at that point when I'd seen it, I was like, well, that didn't really mean anything because I had not re-familiarized myself with the tone and the evolving tone of those films. Um, and this time around, it made for probably the most fitting ending. And, you know, I was more appreciative of the fact that they tied in uh, Danny Trejo's character and how there was like actually a connection there, right? I think with the first two films, you're kind of like periodically trying to like trying to find the connective point between the different like bullet points and things like that and characters and plot points. But with this, like it might've been thinly veiled, but it it was still there. Right. It still had some semblance of history behind it. And I think that having history catch up with them at a certain point was very fitting to the Western evolution that these took. Right. The action that you did weeks, months or years ago is inevitably going to have consequences. They're just going to be kind of late in getting here. Yeah, it's it's uh it's it's a cool evolution and I definitely um I definitely do like the idea of just the three pissing off the cartel so much that they just get attacked, but it is nice to have that connection. 
I love that it has that zany, that Rob Zombie zany is still though. It's like, it's not just the cartels coming after you. It's that it's going to be assault rifle wielding luchador mask wearing cartel hitmen. Yeah. Like it still has that level of zaniness to it that it works, but I appreciate the extra effort to make it more than just exactly what you're expecting, you know, with the setting and the sort of situations that they find themselves yeah. in. I, I loved uh, Baby's bow and arrow skills. I just thought that was awesome. Yeah, and it it furthermore is just like this person that's very capable of killing you, but they're going to take it a step further and do it in this even more complicated means, right? There's one scene where she shoots a guy with an arrow and hits him in the neck, and it's like, well, that's not good enough. She's got she got to headshot him too. She's got to dome him once, um, and uh, you know, it, uh, furthermore, like every action that the characters take in those instances just feels like a byproduct of their already established personalities but to a uh to maybe a more brutal and sometimes silly degree but it has that satisfying conclusion in the end but yeah man i mean i was really really fortunate i feel to uh chat about these movies with you because they're movies that again i've done more or less a 180 on i still maybe one or two things about certain entries in the series that don't click with me still but i think overall like getting to chat with you about them and getting to revisit them is giving me more of an appreciation for them. It also helps that I've explored a lot more of Rob Zombie's uh, filmography that, you know, at a later point in time, I'd love to chat with you about because like I have a newfound appreciation for those Halloween remakes, uh, Lords of Salem, I love. Um, and he's a he's a filmmaker that I, I think has, is going to age better than maybe out of the gate or within the first 20 years, people are willing to, uh, to attribute him with. Uh, yeah. I mean, I, I've, I, I'm infatuated with his filmmaking. I think Rob Zombie is so underrated and he is just, he, he's someone that I am just so excited to jump back into. I'm going to watch Halloween two pretty soon here. Um, I'm going to watch, I need to watch Lords of Salem. I'm just dying to watch Lords of Salem and, uh, go from there. But, uh, I, I've had a, fucking rad time talking to you about these movies because uh i think i think it was like we we didn't know which way to go with this episode we were like should we do halloween should we do this this and that and then i said uh i just watched house of a thousand corpses i'm gonna watch the rest of them we're doing this because that movie was fucking awesome and that's that then the rest is history we did this episode (laughs) uh i love these movies they're fucking awesome and they, I, 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 I mean, I'll be a broken record. I think Rob Zombie deserves more credit for his, his skill, um, in writing and directing. And I think if you want to see him create compelling characters that you want to succeed and want to survive and win, despite being complete scumbags, uh, look no further than the Firefly trilogy. Absolutely. Perfectly put. And, you know, I think it's a uh, it's always a good sign when I reach out to somebody about chatting horror. And it's not we struggle to find something to talk about, but we have so many things we want to talk about that we struggle to, to hone it down for one. So I have a feeling that uh, that we'll, you'll be back sometime soon, hopefully, to uh, to chat more horror and, you know, we'll chat more Rob Zombie horror because I can't wait to hear what you think about Lords of Salem and uh, especially, you know, Halloween 2. Oh, yeah. Uh, another another underloved uh, Rob Zombie effort that I think definitely deserves more credit than it's gotten. Yeah, man. Well, I'll definitely let you know when I'm wa- I've watched them because I can't help myself but talk to everyone about horror movies when I watch them. So you'll be hearing from me. 
Absolutely. But uh, before I let you go, uh, why don't you plug your uh, podcast and you can plug your Twitter if you want so people know where to uh, follow you. Oh, yeah. Uh, you can find me on Twitter, uh, just Matt Paget, one T M A T P A G E T. It's uh, it's a terrible account. So you'll follow me for a week and unfollow me. Um, but uh, you, you can hear me more on the nuclear fridge, including Jay here. He, he featured in an episode a couple weeks back. Um, and, uh, yeah, uh, that's the nuclear fridge. Just find it on Twitter, uh, Instagram, well, actually, I guess not Instagram, uh, just Twitter and anchor Spotify, Apple podcasts, all your podcast apps. We're on it. Uh, but yeah, thanks again for having me, Ben. This was a, uh, an absolute pleasure. Awesome. Thank you for listening to another episode of Daily Horror Habit. You can follow the show on Twitter at Daily Horror Pod or give me a follow at NotFunnyJ. Thanks again for listening and I'll see you guys next week.